Welcome to the Vet Voice Foundation podcast, where we interview veterans employed or advocating within the conservation and public land space. I am your host, Kate Hoyt. Today, we're interviewing Maggie Seymour, a Marine veteran who spent 10 years on active duty and in 2017, as part of her transition to the reserves, ran across the country from San Diego to Virginia Beach in 99 days to raise money and awareness for veterans, Gold Star families, and special needs athletes. This is her story of service and running the United States. Hey, Maggie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So let's talk a little bit about life growing up and your connection to the outdoors. Well, I grew up in a tiny little town in central Illinois. I grew up outside of a town of 200 people. So like quite literally in the middle of a cornfield. And so we grew up in a really tiny farmhouse, no air conditioning. So like once summer came, it was, I never wore shoes. I didn't wear a shirt and I was just outside. I don't know if that was like by design or what, but it was too miserable to be inside. And so it was my three siblings, I'm the baby. And it was like, go outside and play. And we didn't have any like neighbors. Our closest neighbor was maybe five or six miles away. So we did a lot of independent outdoor activities that included basically eating dirt and finding critters. We lived on a farm. We didn't farm it. And it was a soybean corn farm. But we did have animals like intermittently. So we had pigs for like a year when my brother was an FFA. We had rabbits, which was a really great way to learn about reproductive systems. I think we might have had chickens at some point, but we always had cats and dogs running around and stuff. So growing up, you know, in the country, we were just always outside. We had, I think we had one of those old Nintendo things that you, you blew into, but it was like my sister. So we had to fight over who got to play that. We had like three channels. So there's nothing to do inside really. And then we played sports and I worked on a farm in the summer or I detasseled corn, which I don't know if anyone knows what detasseling is, but it's also a great way to, to learn about botany reproduction. But I did that for seven years. It was the best thing ever. Uh, and you're just outside all day um, in the fields, either on a machine or walking. We didn't really go outside for like recreation. We didn't do, I mean, we went camping and stuff like that, but it was just life was outdoors. Like work and play, everything was outdoors. For listeners, what is it you did with the corn? What I, I forgot. What <laughs> Detasseling. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so there's there are three types of corn. There's sweet corn, seed corn, and feed corn. Um, and then there's some hybrids and stuff. But sweet corn is what we eat, which is very small percentage of the corn grown in the United States is sweet corn. And then there's feed corn. And that's the bulk of what we grow in the United States. And that goes to feed pigs and cows and other livestock. But in order to grow that, you need seed corn. So some farmers grow seed corn and sell that seed to the farmers to plant the feed corn. So if you're ever driving by a cornfield, which the country is full of them, uh, and you come across a field that's got a tall row in the middle and then two short rows on each side, that's seed corn. So that's the male and female plants. Most of the corn that you see is not, there's no gender to it, but in seed corn, you have a male plant and you have a female plant. And essentially all the corn tassels because corn's genetically modified, but if the female tassels pollinate, you get bad corn. So you have to go through and pick out all of the tassels out of the female plants so that the male plants can pollinate the female plants. And then you just take out the male plants once they're done with their their job, which is the part that I love. And then you harvest the female plants, the female corn. And you have to do it at just the right time. If you do it too early, you'll damage the leaves, which will damage the yield. And if you do it too late, then the tassels, which are the things on top, 
that kind of flower off and pollinate. If those start to pollinate, that's when you get bad corn. And there's like a one week window or whatever to get to each field. So it's a, a nice game of math. If you live in a Midwestern town somewhere, you probably know someone or did this because of child labor laws. You can do it when you're 13. <laughs> Our The guy that I worked for, the company I worked for was a family farm. that pay, I do believe they paid minimum wage. So it was actually, it was a great way to make $300 when you're 13, which is, you know, an amazing amount of money. <laughs> so what made you decide to join the Marine Corps? Were your family members in the military? My dad and his brothers, he was one of six boys. And if you've ever met one Seymour boy, my grandmother deserves some sort of medal of freedom. And he was in the guard, but he was out by the time we were born. We weren't a military family, but his brothers were and had deployed and My cousin, Devin, was a Marine, joined after 9-11, joined when he was 17, and was killed in 2005 in Iraq. And it was, you know, really moving. I mean, the service was really powerful to me. The Marines that came, you know, weren't part of his unit. Obviously, his unit was still in Iraq. I had never met him, but they had come down, you know, to do the funeral detail and just to pay their respects. And and that was something to me that was really quite cool. Um, And I, you know, leaving the, the... the cemetery that day, I told my mom, I was like, oh, I think I want to join the Marine Corps. She was just kind of like, okay, yeah, that sounds great, Maggie. And so I did. I was in college at the time and I found an OSO and was like, hey, let's do this. So yeah, so I, I was always raised to be a patriot. I was always raised to think military service was honorable, but it was definitely the camaraderie and kind of the esprit de corps. And like, I, I wanted to be part of a community like that. And, you know, probably a lot of that comes from growing up in a small community like it did is you want that. You want the the idea that you go and you belong to a place and to an organization. So you go in and you're an officer. What was your MOS? I was an O two O seven to start. So an air Intel. And then once you get to captain level for the Marine Corps, you become a general Intel officer. And you did a few deployments. Can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah, so I was super anxious about missing the war, um, which looking back now is probably short-sighted. I mean, we all were. We were all 20. I was 21 when I joined the Marine Corps. I was like a month after my 21st birthday. So spend the first year doing all your training and I got my unit and you know, my first call, my boss, who's still a friend today, he's like, okay, well, we're going to Iraq in January. And I was super excited because this is you know, going to be awesome. And it was in a lot of ways. It was really challenging and fulfilling. So we did a year in Iraq. I was with the aircraft group there. So I was at headquarters unit, staff officer. I was the alpha to the the guy who was, is still my mentor and friend. And he left about three or four months into it. And there was this question of whether or not his replacement was going to come out and replace him. And he you know, went to the XO and said, let her run this. Let, like, let her try. She's smart. She's capable. She can do this. So he really left me in a position to have a lot more responsibility than I probably deserved. But that, you know, that's good. It was like a sink or swim moment. I worked with great, mostly guys. All of my mentors and peers were men who really helped me grow and understand. I made a lot of mistakes. I got yelled at a lot by a lot of people. But the second deployment was about a year and a half later. It was seven months to Afghanistan with a squadron. Also made great friends and still friends today. Uh, but, you know, just a little bit different. It was a little bit smaller every unit, a little bit more casual. We did lose a crew chief on that deployment, which was heartbreaking right at the end to four or five days before turnover. So 
that was really hard. And I think really hard for the unit and especially, you know, upon returning. And then my last appointment was to Kuwait in 2016. I was back at headquarters unit. I was with an air component to a MAGTAF, to the special purpose MAGTAF. And so that was really my first experience deploying with ground people, which was weird and different. And I prefer the air side. You can call me a fake Marine if you want, but I like showers and air conditioning. So that was like eight months. And that was actually right before I, I got out of the Marine Corps in 2017. So it was nice to get that deployment, come home, do your post-deployment and transition out. So did you get totally out or did you transition to the reserves? I transitioned to the reserves. Yeah. So I'm still in the reserves now. So part of your transitioning to the reserves, you decided to run across the country. Yes. San Diego to Virginia Beach. Can you talk about well, multi-pronged question, like why running? Crazy run across the country. Uh, I think this yeah. is when we met and worked together at National University. That was that yep. And just, yeah, like why the outdoors? Why running? How did that help you? I knew transitioning off active duty was going to be, I mean, a transition period, just like it says. So from a, a logistical standpoint, that was probably going to be my only time to do this really big, cool thing that I'd been wanting to do for a couple of years because I would have the time and the, and the money to get across the country before starting another life. And I know it's a cliche and not to get too much into politics, but 2016, you know, had that effect on me, the election that it did on so many people in terms of like, whoa, I, maybe I don't know my country as well as I thought I did which was particularly hard for me since I grew up in the rural area in the flyover states, grew up in, in that red America or what I hate to hear people refer to as real America. And I thought like I had not been in small town America for 10 years and I had joined the Marine Corps and been bounced around. I think my longest address was actually Iraq for a year, but bounced around for 10 years, new people always in some sort of you know, not that Jacksonville, North Carolina is like a bustling metropolis or anything, but it always been in a city or what we would call a city or a town. And so part of it was that I wanted to take the time to see the country that I'd grown up in and maybe had lost touch with a little bit. So there was a little bit of that social angle. And then it was just, I wanted the time to myself wanted to do something that was a really big challenge and would give me plenty of time to reflect and figure out what I wanted to do next, be kind of intentional about that. And I wanted to give back, you know, I, I'm a big person on community and being in the Marine Corps and moving around so much, there were a few organizations that had just accepted me and made my duty stations feel like home and I wanted to raise some money and awareness for them. So it was kind of a threefold reason and running. I you know, I'm not fast by any means. And there was certainly a lot of walking. <laughs> Probably arguably, I, I more walked across America or shuffled across America than ran across America. But everything just kind of lined up into place. And it just seemed like it was just absolutely the right thing to do for that time. So first you raised over $100,000 for a couple groups. Yeah, so they, they generally fell in three categories. They supported vets, um, special needs, athletes, or gold star families. And it took you 99 days. So can you talk just about, I mean, your days were crazy. Like you were running for hours and hours and then eating yeah. pizza. Like it could take us through <laughs> like a day. Yeah, potato chip sandwiches. Uh, I mean, it, it was miserable. It, it basically woke up with me hitting the snooze and trying to convince my support driver, whoever it was, 
that we could just 30 more minutes. No, 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 it's fine. It's too cold. It's what, you know, we're in the desert in July. It's not too cold, Maggie, get your ass out of bed. So we started off, you know, from San Diego and it was, I mean, just almost instantly realized that this was not like the runs that I'd done before. We couldn't take this as like, oh, I'm going to go for a 20 mile run. And then I'm just going to do that every day. So we started in July and the desert in July is pretty hot. So we had to switch to nights like day three. And I hate running at night. I am terrified of the dark. It was miserable. I hated it. I hated every minute of it. And it wasn't much cooler. It was, I mean, it was still 88, 90 degrees at midnight. So it was like trying to, trying to sleep and just kind of get into the groove, right? So the first two weeks was just pure chaos. The van broke down like the day before we were supposed to start. We had to borrow a Jeep from my friend's ex-husband who was on a deployment. You know, it was like wild like that. We got the van. Someone drove the van out to me. I had friends that had come in to help me start. I had five or six support drivers that had rotated out, right? So that, you know, someone would come out for a couple weeks or a month. The van was just full of crap. Like, we didn't know what anything was. I packed probably two big trunks of stuff that never touched. Everything was dirty. Two bottles of whiskey got broke in the desert and sacrificed to the sun gods. And it was just trying to find these crappy little motels like in the middle of nowhere or literally like the middle of nowhere where there were no hotels. You know, we were driving like an hour each way to try to find a Motel 6 that maybe didn't have like bed bugs. I mean, they probably did, but they weren't going to survive out there. So, I mean, it was just hell. Got into a groove. We started, I think when we hit Phoenix was really where we started to get into a rhythm. And we would do 33 miles a day. And then we'd take a, a rest day about once a week. I had a 1995 Eurovan. Her name is Diana. I love her. And I, my support driver, I had a number of them. And at the time, we would drive about 13 miles, right? So we'd do three legs. We'd go about 13 miles. I'd stop, drink a Coca-Cola, eat a potato chip sandwich. I gave up meat for the run to recover a little faster. So I just ate straight carbs and sugar. It was just like... If you left a 10-year-old in a truck stop alone for an hour with a credit card, like I ate whatever that 10-year-old would have put in their face. So we'd do 13 miles, I'd eat some high-octane crap, run for another like 10, take another break, and then the last leg would take us to 33. 33 miles at a time just marched across the United States. You know, after we got through the desert, it was a pretty great, pretty mild weather. Um, Arkansas was really miserable and hot. We were there in September, but it's still, it's the South, you know? But we get done with the day, we get to a hotel. We did stay in hotels the whole time because we did have National had sponsored us, um, which was really, really super helpful. You know, I'd try to write a blog. I would try to take an ice bath, which is just also miserable drink a glass or six of wine and, you know, go to bed. And, and it was just like, wake up and repeat and do that all over again the next day. So yeah, it's not nearly as glamorous as I make it sound in the Instagram. It was pretty miserable. <laughs> but, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, you just have a ton of grit. Like I tr recently tried to get into running again, not get back into it because I never liked it, but I... <laughs> You know, I would go my like live one little mile and I got to like three and a half and I was so proud and I was like, I don't want to do any more miles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's so relative. Like I, I can't like trying to go one, I think I've reset my body into this 
in the, to this thing of like, we don't run three miles straight anymore. Like what, what, no, we walk, we do 15 minute miles. Like maybe on a good day, we'll knock out some 12s, you know, set some land speed records, but you just adjust, you know, looking back now, I'm like, how, like, how did I, I must've cheated. Like, I don't think that that was, someone must've picked me up in my sleep and like driven me 50 miles every night. I mean, it's amazing what you can just adjust to, but I don't think I can quite explain how miserable it was the night before we finished, you know, my partner flew in and I remember going, like getting ready to go to sleep and just bawling, just crying. And he's like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, it was so hard. And he's like, but it's done. It's over. Like, are these happy tears? I'm like, no, it was so hard, you know? So yeah, it was awful, but it was like, it was like one of those things of like, I told people I was going to do it. So you know, when I just like supposed to quit and I didn't have any injuries, like knock on wood. I just be like, Oh no, I just got tired in Oklahoma. I thought I, you know, pack it in. Like that wasn't going to fly. So just like, it was never an option, you know? Yeah. Okay. A couple follow-up questions. So do you still like running? The physical act of running? Um, I do. So about a year after I finished, I didn't run more than a mile for that year. And I decided I wanted to do the other 50 states. So I'm on a quest now to cross all 50 states on foot. And so, I mean, I like running, but it so, it looks so different to me now. And I like these runs. I like all that time by yourself. I love seeing these tiny little towns. You know, we just finished Michigan last month. It's just so cool. It's like to live in South Carolina. And then go run through a place like Michigan, like the landscape is different. The music's different. The food's different. The accents are different. It's just, I love that part of it. So, I mean, the running part is, is the method to get there, but running has changed for me to be something a little bit different than just the running. So are you going state by state? Is that what you're doing? I am. Yeah. So we've strung a couple states together. Like we've done, you know, two or three at a time, but for the most part, individual runs because working and and all that, you kind of have to unless someone wants to pay me again to just take off a year and run the rest of them. Like my DMS are open if you want to sponsor that. So, Well, it's actually interesting because you're doing it now, right? You're running state by state when you can. Mm -hmm. It's another election year. And you talk about meeting so many folks across the United States. Like have they embraced you and your mission? Like how has that impacted you? Well, it's cool. I'm the unofficial yardside counter um, for my election friends. So, you know, Michigan, swing state, and I was counting the, the Trump versus Biden signs, and they, they were pretty equal, and which would make sense. It is a, you know, swing state. I run through my nonprofit, so we are 100% non-political, and, you know, that that's fun. Running with people is always an interesting experience, right? So my social media is, a I like to say, a very colorful fireworks display but people will always like reach out and be like Maddie where do you find these people and so many of the people I find that have these let's say rich opinions is from running running is not I hate to say running is not political because for so many people it is that's the reality but I will say that when you're running with someone it's really hard one it's really hard to have a fight when you're running because you can't breathe right so it's hard to like start badgering someone or calling them you know a libtard or racist like if you're jogging with them it's also really hard to get away from them right so I remember running I won't say what state or who it was you know but I was running with a guy who was completely different for me politically like it was just like night and day and he mentioned something at like mile two that I was like oh god like 
Whoa. Uh, all right, we got 30 more miles of this. Okay, because you're forced together. It's like, let's figure out a way to talk about this. And it was great. I mean, we had like, I mean, we talked for the whole run and I don't know if my mind changed or his mind changed, but it was one of those things of if you run with someone, it forces you to talk to them. And when it comes to politics, social issues, divisive issues, when it comes to, I mean, I don't know what the world's going to look like when we come out of quarantine and we've spent so much time in our own bubble. I can only imagine it's going to be worse. So going out for a run with someone, you know, you got two options. You can sit and talk to them or you can speed up. <laughs> but, you know, if they're fast, if they're as fast as you, like you're not getting away from them. So you might as well just settle in and like have a conversation. And if they make you really mad, like maybe that'll make you run faster. Like maybe you'll set a PR because you're fighting over, you know, immigration rights or something. It's been interesting. And it's, and for me, it's interesting. The people I meet, like I said, no, we're not partisan, but there's so many things that I'm running for and I care about and that I'm so intertwined with running that, you know, social issues that are intertwined that just, they have to come up. You know, I can't, make this a purely comfortable thing like running you know i read this article about um, about ultra running is uncomfortable like there's nothing comfortable about running 33 miles and so we're actually ultra runners are probably equipped to deal with that uncomfortableness um those uncomfortable conversations which is you know an idea that i really i really like so maybe we should all just go on a long run with somebody. <laughs> I, see i mean <laughs> i'm okay with that like yeah so what state is next on your list to run? Um, you know, this is the first time I don't have one. Um, I'm having a baby in February. So running, so I finished Michigan at 20 weeks, which was doable, but it's different. There's definitely a little passenger on board is like, oh, what are we bouncing around for mom? You know, so we're definitely taking a break until postpartum. And I think we'll probably... If I can get out there soon, I would like to maybe get one of the southern states. I live in South Carolina, so a North Carolina, um, and I think we have North Carolina and Alabama left, um, and Florida, of course. But So if I can knock out one of those three states while I'm down here, I think that's probably your best bet. Um, so, all right, circling back a little bit. So at Vet Voice, you talk about how getting outdoors helps us walk off the war and reconnect with our communities, which you talked a lot about. And, and obviously you found the, the case, but can you talk a little bit more just about how running helped you transition to figure out what were the next steps in your life? You know, part of the Marine Corps transition program is like a ton of self-assessment tests, figure out what color we are. I'm orange, by the way. I don't remember exactly what that means, but I remember I'm orange. We find out what our strengths are. We take all, all these kind of like VIA tests and Myers-Briggs and all this stuff to try to figure out what what we're transitioning to, right? Because there's the logistical part of a transition where you've got to figure out a way to pay the bills and you've got to figure out a way to talk to civilians without cursing every three words, which is a struggle sometimes. But then there's like the more intangible part of it. And that is trying to figure out who you are outside the military, right? The, I mean, the Marine Corps especially is just such a core part of your identity. It's what you do for 8, 10, 12 hours a day. It's what you do for years at a time. That's the Marine Corps way is to take civilians and turn them into Marines, right? So for me, it was, who am I outside of the Marine Corps? What are the things that I maybe had to set aside during my time in uniform that I want to pick back up? That's a long way of saying I, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to be, right? And the thing about 
the outdoors is it's, and I think about the outdoors in this country is it's just you. So I ha- I mean, I had people on the road with me. I had my support driver, but it was, I mean, like 90% of that time was just me. And it was just me and like wide open spaces and nowhere to run from like the things that I wanted to overcome or the things that I wanted to be. And so nature literally and figuratively like provides the space and and kind of forces them to look at themselves. So last year, you know, my partner retired from the Marine Corps and we, we hiked half the PCT and it's the same thing. It was, it was just us. There's no one to talk to. You can't like, and on the, you know, on the trail, you can't like call someone and chat with them. So it's like, you have nothing to do, but examine yourself. And so that is a very painful, but very necessary way to figure out what do I want to do next? It was that time to, to realize that all of these things that perhaps I had put on a shelf for years needed to be picked back up again. And I don't think I would have done that if it wouldn't have been just, you know, eight hours a day, like on a highway somewhere, figuring out what I want to do, you know? To learn more about Maggie's journey, visit runfreerun.com. This is a Vet Voice Foundation production. Our producer is Allison Bailey, and I'm your host, Kate Hoyt.